Hi, I'd like to welcome everybody to the CCW Safe podcast. My name's Rob High in Oklahoma City, joined by my co-host, Phil Naiman. Phil, looks like you're back home in California. Is that right? I am. I'm uh, behind enemy lines as we speak. <laughs> and uh, we are honored to have a partner with us today, Jeff Gonzalez. Jeff, thank you so much for jumping on and, and joining us, brother. Uh, it's my pleasure. I'm happy to be here. Excited to be here. Outstanding. Jeff, where are you from where, originally? Where'd you, where'd you grow up? Uh, born and raised here in Texas. Okay. And uh, did you go straight high school to military? Did you go? I did. Um, so in high school, I, I swam and played water polo. And the uh, back then we had a giant pool that all of our high schools in our school district all went to. So each high school had their own coach. And then there was the head coach for all the high schools. And one day I got called into his office. And usually that's, in my experience, that was usually not a good thing. So I was a little nervous about this particular call. And um, he asked me if I'd ever heard of a modern pentathlon and I mean I, I knew like what a triathlon was <clears throat> and I knew what a decathlon was because I was a big fan of the decathlon athletes at the time but um, I didn't know what a pentathlon was so he took me over to the the headquarters for the U.S. pentathlon team which is there in San Antonio at Fort Sam Houston and I got a chance to meet all the coaches and some of the athletes and it just so happened that <clears throat> there were two active duty SEALs that were assigned to the, uh, well, to the team basically. And they were there training to, uh, you know, perform in the competitions and whatnot. So I got a chance to meet them and it was like, Oof, wow, those guys are studs. And I had already kind of, I joke about this with my, my kids now, because, you know, when you do the career, assessment in high school you know you go to the career center and they have you do the test i'm pretty sure every test i ever did even if i tried to like lie on some of those questions always pointed me in the same direction which was something to do with outdoors and so um i'd already started looking at what i wanted for a career path i did have plans to go to college but when i went to visit the campus like it was my senior year with my parents I was like, no, this is not for me. So the pentathlon kind of happened shortly after that. We went to go and look at colleges in the beginning of that senior school year. And so I didn't get asked to go and check out the pentathlon team until like mid school year. And so um, I came back, coach asked me if I wanted to train for it. And I was like, sure. So right as I graduated, I went right from high school to training full time for the uh, pentathlon. And Jeff, I can did you, that. Can you, uh, uh, Jeff, can you tell the people what are the five? Sure. The five so, disciplines. And, and, I, and I love talking about this because there's so much history and it was kind of like so apropos. Uh, so the pentathlon is made up of five events. Modern pentathlon is made up of five events. You have the most popular ones, which are running and swimming. And then the others that are kind of like in the shadows are uh, equestrian riding, shooting, and my personal favorite, which was fencing. And so those are the five events you compete in all five events and the highest score for all five events is declared the winner. So it was, uh, it was kind of interesting. 
So a little history about modern or about the pentathlon and where it comes from. It has its roots in the military. And so during the <clears throat> like the like during the time period where the only way to get commands from the, you know, the generals who were at the back of the conflict <laughs> were to send messengers up to the front lines and have the folks on the front lines react. So it was extremely critical that the messengers that moved the communication back and forth were basically good at what they did. So they were usually picked because they excelled in those five disciplines they were great writers they could swim and run they had the defensive skills to get the message from point a to point b um, which was the shooting and the fencing back then it was sabers so i was like this is, I didn't, this is about the the time of napoleon wasn't it yes it was actually absolutely so it was kind of like a really cool like i didn't realize it until after the fact when i started studying the pentathlon a little bit in greater detail. Um, so long story short, I competed during the, uh, I was still a junior. I wasn't considered an adult at that time. So I was, I was competing at the junior nationals, but I trained up for the nationals, went to junior nationals. And I'd have to ask my mom, cause I'm sure she could still remember what place I took. I think I was like seventh. It was like inside the top 10. I just can't remember exactly what. And, you know, I thought I did pretty good even though I had only trained, uh, literally we trained five days a week, all day long. And every day we had three different events that you would, you would train. And most every day, every other day would rotate from running to swimming. And, um, you know, it was just a great opportunity. So during that, <clears throat> while I'm training for the pentathlon, um, my, my best friend who I'm actually going to hopefully see, I'm gonna, as soon as I'm done with you guys here, I'm going to go and have uh, lunch. It's so funny. I just now realized this with my best friend. So uh, from high school, he had left like right after graduation, he literally was gone the next day. And he had joined the Navy without really, you know, telling anybody, even if it's even his close friends. So as I'm training for the pentathlon, um, I go to his house because we used to we lived in each other's houses back that was back in the day where you would just walk in the back door to families and whatnot. So when um, I go to visit, his house one day, you know, like, Hey, where is Kevin? Nobody's seen him for a while. What's, what's he up to? And come to find out his parents were like, Oh yeah, he joined the Navy. He went on to be a seal. And I was like, a seal. Oh, wait a minute. I know, you know, cause I had started studying my junior senior year about all the different special operations units that were available at that time. And so I had a fairly decent understanding of what they were, but again, this is pre-internet. So the only information that you can get was what was an open source available, which wasn't a lot. So when I was like training for the pentathlon, I was like, oh, wow. Okay. Well, Kevin went on to do that. That's cool. I still wasn't entirely sure what I was going to do at that point, but I was so focused on just competing at the pentathlon. And it was literally, my mom would laugh because I would leave in the morning, probably about 6.30 and I'd come home <clears throat> literally at night at about 6.30 and <clears throat> all day long, excuse me, all day long, we trained or rested or ate or we're just doing something related to the, to the match. So one day I come home and I'm just like dragging ass. I walk into my living room and sitting on the sofa is Kevin, who is just this like, and he was already a big guy. He was a really big guy, but he had a shaved head, super dark tan, just, just ripped. And I was like, where'd you come from? And then he tells me he's on 
like I think it was a big holiday during the summer. I can't remember what holiday it was. It was some major holiday that we had. Maybe I don't remember what it was, but he had off from the Navy, came home to visit and was waiting in my living room for me. And so we talked, he told me a little bit about it. He was at that point, I think he had, um, he was in first phase still. He was still in first phase. Like he had just classed up or something like that. So I talked with him for a, a good length about his experience there. And it was like the best information. Cause I mean, it was real. It was like, he's there doing right, it. Just, and so it was real. Yeah. It was very timely information. And uh, so he was like my, he was like my iPhone that I was just like hitting up with question after question after question. So after he left, I went back to competing. Um, and without telling my parents, cause I was still underage to enlist. I went into the delayed entry program which basically um, sets you up contractually without needing your parents to be there. So if you're under 18, you could still do it. So I went into the delayed entry program. Um, I enlisted in the Navy and my departure date was like in September, I can't remember. So the, the competition, the nationals was like in the August, I think, or somewhere in that neighborhood. Maybe I can't remember exactly when it was, but I remember I had like a week off. And during this week, I'm just kind of like vegging and relaxing. And I think it was like that first weekend that I told my parents at the dinner table that I had enlisted in the Navy and that I was leaving in like a week. So they were kind of put, um, they're put on notice that I was going to be gone very soon. And they had no idea that I'd been doing because I was gone all the time for the pentathlon. So they just thought that was normal. So I they were kind of, they were they were kind of upset. They're like, oh, "We just thought you were on drugs, but man, you know, you <laughs> mm. professionally training and uh, joining the military. We didn't know any difference." Yeah, so they well, it was fun. I, I really enjoyed the pentathlon. And what was funny was, so there's the modern pentathlon, which is what you can see. It's an Olympic event. You can see it in the Olympics if folks wanted to learn more about it. But there's also a military version of it, and so the military has their own version of the Olympics called the SISM. And it's a French, it's a French, I can't remember exactly, it's French, the, the SISM stands for something in French, I can't remember exactly what it is. But basically, it's a organized competition of various events. And one of the events is the SISM version of Pentathlon, which is completely different. It is, uh, so the, where I was going with this is that um, towards the end of my career, before I left the East Coast, I got drafted to go on to the military version of the SISM team to train for that. I didn't get a chance to compete because I had orders that took me to the West Coast, but I did train up for it. So I just thought that was kind of funny. I started my you know, before my military career with the pentathlon and I almost finished my military career with the pentathlon. So that was funny. So anyhow, that's kind of what happened for me right out of high school. I, tr I trained all summer long. At the end of summer, I was, you know, leaving for boot camp. What are the uh, what are the five in the military version? The five um, disciplines. So they're all there's like there's two aquatic events. They're different, and then there's the land based events, which are also different. There's um there's no riding. There's no equestrian riding. There is shooting. There's no fencing. So they're just a little bit different. They're not less. They're not. It's not set up like the pentathlon where they have specific events. There's kind of like culminating events where you do run swim. There's an O course involved in it. So there's a lot of different things that it's not necessarily apples to apples. It's more like apples to oranges. So, yeah. Very good. What, what year did you join? 87. Right. So yeah. pre, pre 
Oh yeah. yeah. No one had even heard of seals in 87. I think, uh, was so, there, did Charlie, Charlie Sheen's movie even come out yet? It was, I think it was 89. It's so funny because, um, a friend, he's a very famous author and he's always posting, um, little trivia, little tidbits of trivia. And he posted up, I think it was, it, it just, it was funny because it's just like three or four days ago. I'd have to look at my social media feed three or four days ago, Mark, the, 30th anniversary of the release of Navy SEAL or Navy SEALs. And he's like, where were you on this date? And I'm like, mm, well, or where were you? Did you like, where, where did you see this movie? Or where were you when you went to go see this movie? And I'm like, well, I didn't see the movie, uh, but I kind of lived it. Does that count? And so we have a banter going back and forth. So it was kind of funny because literally during the filming of that movie, I was deployed. I remember there was a big uh, kerfuffle up, up north, uh, you know, at the SEAL team area, because, you know, back then it was very, um, very discreet. There was, like you were saying, not a lot of people knew about anything. In fact, when Navy SEAL came out, it was, it was one of the first movies to highlight Navy SEALs, you know, those that were a big fan of, of, um, you know, Magnum PI know that Magnum was a Vietnam era SEAL and whatnot. So there was that kind of allure. So other than that, there really wasn't a lot of SEAL presence. In and you always, you always carry your 1911 locked and cocked in the back of your pants. That's not, if I had, if I could pull off Magnum. wearing shorts like that, and uh, <laughs> I definitely would. Absolutely, definitely would. So, um, yes, God bless them. Love that. Show. I don't think I missed an episode. No, I don't think I did either. No. So, your buddy, Kevin, actually did make the teams. Yeah. No, I'm sorry, Kevin. Um, no, he did not. I don't know why I was right off the bat responding to the per positive. Uh, no. So there's an obstacle in um, our obstacle course called the Slide for Life. And basically it is a tower that you have to climb. Now, it's weird because um, it's got four platforms and each platform is just about nine feet apart eight feet apart so it's like it's basically high enough to where an adult male can literally stand on his tippy toes and put his fingertips on top of the next platform so it's just big enough and you have to ascend each of those platforms so it's about you know 35 ish feet somewhere maybe just around 40 feet high and then to get down there's a rope and it's at an angle and you, um, it's called a slide for life because there's a particular method that you use called a commando slide that you basically get on top. You put, you know, you rest the, you rest the rope across your chest and you, you know, straddle it with your legs and you pull yourself down. You, I mean, if, it's probably you've seen it in some movie or something. I'm sure. Um, maybe so that's the, yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah, actually, maybe in the oak course scene. Um, so, way to do it. So like the oak course, everything you do at Buds is timed. Everything you do is timed. So obviously, if you want to get down the slide for life fast, you'll use a commando style. But it's a little hairy because you're not really holding on. You're literally resting the rope across your chest and you're pulling yourself down. So you don't really have like, I don't know, the best security, if you will. So sometimes people will go where they're under the rope. They wrap their legs around their, the, the rope and it somehow feels more secure to them. I don't know. I always went uh, commando style. And so 
you have to use voice commands when you enter and exit the rope. So, and the reason for that is when weight, uh, when you drop off the rope, there's a whipping effect that goes up the rope. So if you're on the rope, when that whipping effect happens, you basically bear down and you hold on literally for dear life. And then you wait for that wave to kind of pass you and then you can start back up. If you don't, I mean, sometimes you get lucky, sometimes you don't. But um, Kevin, unfortunately, had a, an incident at the very top. So he literally had just gotten on the rope, was starting to descend when the person in front didn't call off, he was exiting the rope. And so the whip came up, Kevin had just gotten on the rope, was still getting situated and he fell. So he fell from almost the maximum height you could fall. And he ended up um, getting a compound fracture in his femur. So he, um, he was for all practical purposes out. The Navy kept him in while he rehabbed because it was a pretty bad break. And so they wouldn't, they just didn't release him to civilian life. They kept him in the Navy for rehab. And he was stationed on a ship there in, um, in, Na in uh, the Navy shipyard there in San Diego, which was nice because he was there in the shipyard when I started Buds. So when I started Buds, he would, he would, he and I would kind of get together and he, he tells the story all the time. Like when I, when we secured hell week, he came off the ship and he stayed with me that whole weekend. I didn't have a roommate. Like my roommate was married. So usually you partner up in your room. So my roommate was married. So he lived off base. So it was just me. And what ended up happening was Kevin, like I literally waddled into my bed, like laid in my bed. And that, and that was like, it. he, he said, he, he said for like three days, I literally slept. I would get up to go to the bathroom and then go right back to bed get up to go to the bathroom, go right back to bed. I didn't sleep. I mean, I didn't eat. I didn't drink. All I did was sleep and go to the bathroom for like three days. So we got secured on Friday. And I think Sunday afternoon, I kind of like opened my eyes and was like, oh, this is what the world looks like. So he always <laughs> gives me shit about that. He's always joking about that time period. Um, so we had a good time. He actually was on the ship, uh, the, sh the name of the ship that he was on, which may uh, people may remember the name was the USS Cole. No, so really? yeah, that was a ship that was bombed. And, was he uh, there when that happened? Or yeah, he was, was actually he on the ship. Yeah, no, he was on the ship when that happened. That was his last. That was his one and only deployment before he officially was medically discharged from the Navy. So um, great guy. So anyhow, Kevin was, is was, Kevin's is Kevin's middle name Lucky? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, he might think so, but no. <laughs> Yeah, I would say he's kind of maybe unlucky in some respects. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So, yeah, that, you know, a lot of people don't even remember that Cole, um, you know, that was under Clinton's time frame and uh, left a lot of guys exposed. I mean, if you want to tell somebody exactly the history on that one, if you got a second there. Well, it's funny because I was just texting him. He just texted me. Um, we're coordinating our lunchtime. So, um, Hang on one second. Let me just say something to him. To, that's too funny. Just mentioned you on. on He's famous podcast. now. Yeah. <laughs> he walks in, it's going to be like that Minions thing where everybody yells, Kevin. <laughs> Hilarious. Um, so. for me if you don't mind your mic dropped oh can you hear me now yes 
Okay, can you repeat your question real quick for me? Um, the coal happened oh, 30, about 30 years ago, right? So many people don't even know what what that was. You know, you want to just give them an so, idea of that? Yeah, for sure. So <clears throat> this happened in the Persian Gulf and the ship was moored in the bay. And what ended up happening was a terrorist organization. I can't remember the, I can't remember which one claimed responsibility for this one, but they basically packed a small yard ship filled with explosives. And they motored the boat over to the, uh, the hole, the side of the ship, and they, they detonated it. Now, this was back, and this is back in a time period too, where force protection for our assets was, yeah. goes so far as to say an afterthought, but yeah, it no, certainly it was, wasn't the first. If you, were on, if you were on the ship, you could yell for them to stay away, but that was it. You know, yeah. you got guys motoring a bomb to you, but they weren't allowed to sink them. Yeah, so they, there, there wasn't the, the so every every I mean every Navy ship has a armed security detail. So the armed detail did get did get activated and did deploy, but they they didn't have the rules of engagement would never have allowed them to do anything to thwart right. the the attack. So things have changed. Obviously, um, they uh, are obviously much more cognizant of it. I mean, there were I can't remember yeah, how many yeah, sailors they, were lost. 37. We have great, great military wisdom earned under the Clinton administration, you know, like, oh, Black Hawk down, you know, why put armor in, a, in an urban area? Um, why not let bombs just sail up to the boats? You know, it's so there was definitely a lot of learning that occurred during that time period, no doubt. I, I remember necessarily yeah, yeah. At, at, uh, unnecessarily. So, anyway, I'll, I'll back off, I mean, Rob. <laughs> that's okay so the one thing i tell people about um like at, we're at a time we you know we that was a time period where you know it, it you could you could look at it from one of two ways <clears throat> that the 70s through the 90s was the apex of what i consider to be the um classical terrorist organizations that were at that time the main source of revenue for terrorist organizations was ransom and kidnapping and they uh, their political agenda and political motivations were somewhat associated in other words they were ransoming off uh, a hostage to have patriots released from that had been captured that was typically the mo back then then there was you know assassinations which was pre very prevalent more so than people actually think uh, because it was it, it didn't it didn't garner the attention of the, uh, the the general population because it was just a very small incident compared to bombing a U.S. war vessel. So um, during that time period, what I because I studied you know part of my part of my you know my indoctrination into the terrorist activity had uh, you know a lot. It, we, we I studied terrorism for for years and years and years, and so. You know, that that time period was very unique in the terrorist MO and what was happening and what you started to see. You saw during that time period a, a shift. Terrorist methodologies, because what you saw was you saw the bombing. Well, it started with the bombing of the Marine barracks in Beirut. Yep. Then you saw the bombing of the embassies in Africa. Then you and saw yeah. the bombing of the Kobar Towers and then you saw the bombing of the USS Cole. So what you saw during that time period was you saw 
a, a, and, a and the first World Trade Center and the first World Trade Center is correct. And you see a um, departure from the what I again what I would call that classical terrorist mo to something that was much more nefarious, much more um, goal driven. You know the goal the goals were very driven at that point. And and again, you know to understand any terrorist organization while they are, you know they they're they're a funded organization without funding. They are somewhat meekless, but with funding, they are very dangerous. So that's kind of how I kind of get into the the nitty gritties of terrorist organization. I mean, there's a whole other whole other subset of terrorist mindset and whatnot. But but one of the things that I've always reminded people of is where where is the money coming from? If you understand terrorist organizations and you track down the funding of how they're funded, that's a good way to try to start sorting them out which is one so, of the reasons which is one of the ways that we were able to track and eventually capture kill we saw in bin Laden was we were able to figure out follow the money trail boom so anyhow so i'm sorry to interrupt not, not to mention any countries but the initials might be saudi arabia <laughs> um yeah perhaps yes perhaps <laughs> curious <laughs> well we've we're, we're solving the world problems here um but you know, Trident Concepts is your company, and you're now helping out civilians here get trained up for other areas, right? So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so when I left the Navy, I left the Navy, and my, my intentions with leaving the Navy was uh, we found out at the time I had a girlfriend, and we found out that she was pregnant. And I had done, you know, roughly nine and a half years, 10 years on the East Coast in deployment status. And, you know, I had five deployments plus my stint and training. So it was not an easy life. And I knew a lot of my teammates who had a really tough time trying to raise a family. So we had this naive idea that we were going to do something different. And I, I say naive because looking back at it, I ended up doing pretty much the exact same job. I just am doing it on my own as opposed to having the government pay me. Um, which was we wanted to wanted to be able to kind of like be in charge of our own destiny. And so that meant leaving the Navy and starting a business and trying to be successful in our own in our own way. And, and originally, I didn't believe that starting a business was going to be ideal. Um, what I ended up doing was I ended up working for a couple of different organizations that all kind of didn't work out. And in the process, I'm saying to myself, I could do this. Why am I, why am I doing this for somebody else? And so we stood up Trident Concepts unofficially in 99. And then 2001, we became an official legal entity. Um, so I started Trident Concepts back then. And we were, it was an interesting time period because we were right at the beginning of the GWAT. And coming out of the Navy, there were, at the time, you re, there, were, there were like two or three special operations guys that had combat experience that were providing training. I mean, it was a very, very small, small mm -hmm. club back then. And I was one of the only SEALs that was doing it. There was a couple of SF guys, um, 
there was a Marine. I'm trying to think now. I think that that was the extent of it that back then, you know, obviously now it's, it's, uh, you know, you can't throw your hat without hitting somebody from that kind of genre, if you will. So we can, I, I gotta tell you, let me, let me tell you this one, this one thing and I'll get right back to you, but um, in Prescott where our other offices, uh, I can't tell you how many special forces people are deep in that place. It's, I mean, you want to talk about one location where they all seem to just like and, and congregate, uh, it, it's amazing the community up there. I mean, we've got Grant Casada and, and uh, the guys I can't even mention, but um, it, it's it's amazing to see a that many people with that much experience in one location. It just it makes you feel safe. That's interesting. Sure. Interesting. That is funny. Um, so when we when we kicked off Trident Concepts originally, I did not uh, have a, a, a like a, an agenda about what I wanted to try to accomplish. It was just. You know, we were living hand to foot at that point. We were taking any any contracts or any, any training that we could set up. Um, I also, at that time, wrote a book. And I, and I believe the book that I originally wrote had an impact in our success because what I was trying to do was distance myself from the, like I did a, an assessment of the industry to see kind of what was out there. And a lot of that at the time was, I guess the best way to explain it was uh, very, you know, the, the trainers that were out there were law enforcement related and that was great. And at the time law enforcement um, was a different type of, it was a different breed of sorts. But the other thing about law enforcement back then was that they weren't in it. The escalation of violence was still kind of, low so the average officer getting in a gunfight was pretty low whereas on the special operations side of the house you had guys that were coming back that were you know indoctrinated into that very very quickly and very um very well so i was trying to distance myself and provide a different perspective than what was out there and so i wrote that book and the book was you know because my philosophy at the time was divergent from what was current and so i had to figure out a way to to separate myself from the pack and at the same time create a product that was uh, you know something that somebody wanted and one of the things that we did and people that have been through our classes will attest to this is you know i i, I always tell this in the beginning of a class there are three things that have led to our success studying our 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 past, we always try to figure out what we did well so we can repeat that. There are three things. You know, the first is that everything that we put out is built around battlefield experience. So whether it's my own, my staff, or the community at large, you know, we take that information, we digest it, and then we, pre we present it in a manner that is applicable to whoever our customer client is. The second thing is everything that we do is built around performance standards. And this was one, this was what separated us from everybody, because at the time, nobody was doing anything with regards to standards, you would go and you would qualify. And the qualification was in, in many respects, mild, in my opinion. But our standards were not tough standards by any stretch of the imagination and our intermediate level classes are still hard to pass, and they shouldn't be but they are. So we started holding, we started keeping 
like we started collecting data points at that point. And it was like, we would just collect data on anything, anything and everything we could so that I could then speak from a position of authority or an informed position. Like, all right, in this year, we've done this many pistol classes, this many people have passed the class, this many people failed, where did they fail and why did they fail? So we started to study performance. And then what I would tell students is like, I don't care what you do, where you come from, if you wear or don't wear a uniform, all I care about is your performance. Can you meet the standard? Because if you can't meet the standard, we need to figure out why, and then we need to work at trying to solve that problem. I always was under the impression that somebody that came to train with me came to train with me because they wanted to improve. So that was like my, like, that was like my directive. You're coming to me because you recognize that I have answers that you don't, and you're looking for those answers. So I'm going to give you those answers. But it was a hard pill to swallow for so many people because what ended up happening was we unveiled in many cases how poorly trained the masses were in some respects as far as standards were concerned. And I always joke about it like, you know, we um, I don't know how to do it any other way. Well, let me let me ask this quick question. What was the number one area people failed? I mean, what, what are the standards you're looking for? I mean, obviously safety, accuracy. I don't know what your others are, but of the standards that you have metrics on, what were the areas they failed most often? So um, standard is a very difficult term uh, for a lot of people to understand, right? So to us, a standard is something that is measurable, or first of all, it's observable, then it's measurable, and then it's repeatable. Right. So uh, in our classes, we have basically two, two kind of like buckets of standards. You can either have a standard that's time related. You can have a standard that's accuracy related. But the third bucket is the standards that are both time and accuracy related. And that seems to be where most people have a hard time. Um, it, there was a, this drive for people to try to be like at, the, at that point, people just wanted to shoot fast. And so speed, speed standards in place were impressive. And a lot of people were doing amazing things at, the, at those high speeds, but the accuracy standard was really kind of piss poor. On the flip side, those that, and there was a, the, the, the masses that were speed oriented overwhelmingly were the majority. Those that were more accuracy minded were great when it came to shooting when mark when you had to demonstrate marksmanship but, but the problem too slow was well the problem was that they the moment that you applied any sort of pressure or stressor you would see their technique full, kind of like fold if you will so it was trying to merge those two together that really made the difference you know i actually uh, per personally for me because my background's been hunting hmm. and you know it's high-powered rifle um and it's it's accuracy it's taking your time it's focusing on the crosshairs waiting for the shot to break you know and so that's been my hunting experience mm -hmm. and so when i first took my first combat course uh, with falcon ops in the in socal um i was slow i mean i was shooting guys right on right on the the button on their shirt but it was a whole different mindset it's like wait a minute um, I had to get into the idea of anywhere inside the silhouette is a, is a win. 
as sure. opposed to I want a perfect hole. I want a nice group here. I want my target sure. to look best. And, and it's, it's a whole different mindset. And that's, that was what was interesting to me is like, you go fast. It's okay. In, in is good. Um, mm. Really slow, uh, a slow, nice group is the dead guy. And that's mm. you. Well, and there's a lot of truth to that. The, the, what I try to get across to people is that you're riding a fine line. You can't go so fast that you generate a miss and you can't go so slow that you're late. So you right. have to find that balance. And that's where, that's where our influence and in standards really, I think, made a big difference. Uh, people would come to our class, did not like the fact that they did not pass, did not like the fact they did not get a certificate, did not like the fact that their, um, the image that they had in, of themselves as a shooter was wrong. And so we hurt a lot of people's feelings back then. And I don't apologize for it. And I still don't apologize for it um, because the truth of the matter is, is that what we were trying to do was to, uh, we have a saying in our community, which is get comfortable being uncomfortable. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to push you to the point of failure. And then once you fail, we're trying to figure out why did you fail? What can we do to overcome that failure? And then what can we do to sustain that in, in the long, in the big picture. And that's one of the things that was really hard for people to get across is that it's okay to fail. It was like, uh, like at the time failing is bad, you know, like anything to do with failing. I mean, I, I was guilty of it myself through the junior years in the Navy. It wasn't until towards the end that I really started to recognize, okay, I need to be pushing myself harder and faster. And when I fail, I need to figure out why did I fail? And that was like a major watershed moment for a lot of people is like, don't look at the failure. Um, so one dimensional in a sense, you know, you associate yourself as a failure because you failed the class. That's not the key. What failed was your training. What failed was your skill set. That's what failed. We need to figure out why that failed and then work from there. So I've had students that failed a class and they left angry, upset, disappointed, frustrated, you name it. If it was negative, they left with that feeling. And then they would just turn into this amazing, like focused, disciplined individual that had a singular purpose, which was to come back and pass the class. And I joke about it. I make light of it. But what they did between when I saw them, because usually we'll circle back to some of the regions that we travel to. So we, we might do a class in LA one year and then we won't do another class until the next year. So when we, um, when we would come back, I'd see the same names in classes, which was great, obviously. You know, we love seeing returned students and, you know, they'd get on the firing line and um, like sometimes I would see a completely different shooter. I mean, somebody that was night and day from the last time that I saw them. And I would usually talk to them kind of informally in the class, like, what'd you do in between the last time I saw you? It's like, oh, and they would just like open up with this, like, man, I started training. I shot, you know, this many rounds every month. I did this many drills. I went to all these other schools. And the only thing that I wanted to try to do was get better to come here and pass this class. And usually I would say a student would fail maybe once or twice before they might pass a class. And so the uh, certificates that we give out are fairly coveted because there's not a lot of them. You know, it's not like we 
it's not like I don't like giving them out. I love giving them out because that definitely is what we're looking for, but they just don't come out that often. Um, and, and it just, you know, I, I don't have a really good explanation for why sometimes we don't see the higher pass rates, um, with the training. I think it's just, um, you know, it's one of these things where the shooting industry is not a very well governed industry. There's not any oversight or committee or anything that sets forth these like, like expectations for an individual, you know, it's up to the individual to kind of sort it out on his own. Yeah. I don't think we're calling for more bureaucracy at this point. Um, but you actually have, you actually have some training programs though, right? Yes. Are you referencing the Tacos? There you go. <laughs> right. So I, it was, it was funny because a lot of times I look at what's, what's bugging me the most and, and how can I figure out how to turn this into something good. So, and I, and I, I say this with a lot of love and affection, what was bugging me the most was I would have students come up to me and ask me for our curriculum. Hey, can I get a copy of your curriculum? And I'm like, no, you can, if you come through our instructor course, you come through the instructor course, that's part of the process is that you learn our curriculum, you're given the curriculum, you're expected to teach the curriculum, right? That's in the instructor level class. All the other classes, you know, people will ask for our curriculum all the time. I'm like, nope, I've even, I've even caught people, like I might have my, I might have my schedule in my hand as we're talking about something in the class and somebody will break out their phone and they'll be like trying to like snap a picture of the, of the schedule while I'm sitting there doing a brief or something like that. I've set my schedule down on the desk or the, the, the table back by the students. And, you know, somebody will kind of like kind of glance over and look at it and be like, oh, okay, it's nothing fancy. It's just, you know, we're very well organized. Everything is down to, um, you know, every minute is accounted for. Every round is accounted for. There's a very disciplined, structured experience that students come through when they see us. So, um, you know, that's one of the things that I, I feel we do really, really well is that we're very well organized. Students have an experience that I don't, I try to get this across in the very early parts of the class, which is I don't want you to feel as though you have to have a positive outcome here. What you have to have <laughs> is a positive experience, right? Positive experience is the ultimate goal. If you have and a positive you, experience. And then you can tell them like, and by the way, you don't have enough experience to know if you're having a positive experience or not. I'll, I will tell you. If you've uh, had a they know. You, you, you <laughs> can tell those that know. They, they know. They know. It's, that's one of those things where they, they definitely know. So what is the training program? Oh, gosh. So sorry. <laughs> so anyhow, um, I got tired of people asking for my curriculum. So what I ended up doing was, um, you know, when I came, when it comes to my own professional development, I have, uh, you know, I have, I've had a longstanding love hate relationship with my own training programs and what I do to try to maintain my skills. And, you know, they're very, again, very organized, very disciplined. When I go to the range, there's a plan, there's an objective. And what I basically did was I took that and I organized it into a delivery system that would make it easy for somebody to do the same thing. So what we did was we took a deck of cards. So four suits, you know, 13 cards per suit, 52 total. Everybody knows that. And what we did was we took each of those cards. So like you have four suits. So we had four disciplines. Once one suit would be all about speed. One would be about marksmanship. One would be dry fire. And then one would be baselines. 
And each card would have a specific task, condition, and standard, which is what TACO stands for, task, conditions, and standards. Um, and the student was given basically a, uh, a, a training plan. They didn't realize that's what they had in their hand, but they had a training plan. So for instance, if you want to go to the range and you want to work on your marksmanship skills, where well, you would have an actual suit that you could just pull cards off and say, oh, you know what? I'm going to work on this drill because that drill would give you the task that you need to complete. So whatever it is, all right, you're going to fire five rounds, the conditions, you're going to fire those five rounds at the 25 yard line versus a you know six inch target and the standard, uh, you've got to get 80% or better. So the, 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 the user would have all this information available to them and then they could start to track their own progress. So maybe that was the ace of spades, whatever. So they shoot the ace of spades one month, they do a little practice, they shoot the ace of spades the next month and they either get better or they got worse or they stayed the same. And so they had their own way of managing that. And I, I loved it. You, I mean, you don't have to be that disciplined. You could just like shuffle the deck, pull out two or three cards and have at it, which is nice because I do that with my friends when we go to the range. There's a group of us that will go to the range and just shuffle the cards, pull out, and we'll see who's the top shooter for that card. That's kind of like a little, little way to stress everybody out, put a little pressure on everybody. Um, I, think, during the I think one of the things that you said on there that's really important is that when you go to the range, you have a plan and an objective. It's Absolutely. not, I got 200 rounds of nine millimeter. And, and I see this a lot. I mean, when I'm teaching somebody who's new or they're coming out with me for the first time, I said, I'll watch a guy jack up full magazines. I won't say how many, cause I'm in occupied territory here, but um, they're jacking up a full magazine and they're standing there and they're just emptying the entire gun, you know, and it looks like a shotgun pattern and, and they're, they're, they're going to shoot three, 400 rounds, um, but they're just kind of making noise and uh, putting copper in the dirt for, for no particular reason. So the plan and the objective, I think, is very important um, ahead of well, time. I couldn't agree with you more. And one of the things that I liked about the TACOS program was that you, you had a couple different ways that you could approach it, right? So during the ammo shortage, right, there was that time period where ammo was tough to come by. You could take um, like, let's just say that you only had a hundred rounds that you, that was, that was as much as you were willing to go to the range with, maybe even not that, maybe 50 rounds, one box of ammo. All right. So you can go through the cards and each card has a total cumulative amount for the rounds fired for that card. So it might be 15, might be 20, whatever. And you could pull out cards that totaled 50 rounds. And so now with the 50 rounds that you have, you have a training plan that you can go to and use effectively. Um, if you uh, wanted to fire 200 rounds, you can do the same thing. So, you know, it was, it was a really well, I, I mean, you know, given, I was very happy with how it came out because, you know, in my, in my mind, you know, I wasn't sure if people would appreciate kind of how we organize those, those cards they look at it from maybe the, the bottom level. Whereas, you know, we try to build it for somebody that is looking at it from the top level, like what you were saying, like I have a goal, I have an objective, this is what I'm going to the range to practice and train. And I have a way to document my performance. That was the other thing. Using the TACOS program encouraged people to start keeping score for themselves, tracking their own performance. You know, the, the other thing is, I think the cost of this is pretty much less than a box of shells anyway. Right. It's like 20 bucks. 
Yeah. So, so you can get yourself a, a training program. You can use track, stay organized on, and mm. you know, you're going to waste 50 rounds, not doing it. So it, it's, it's, it's like I tell my wife, you're making money by spending this money here. It's, it's a positive factor here. It's true. That's a good way to look at it. And, and that's what we try to get across. It's like, you know, you're, we, we talk about the time, talent, and treasure, right? Everybody's time is very difficult. Your talent, you know, what you're trying to build, what you're trying to improve, whatever that might be, what you're trying to sustain, that is also a challenge. And then your treasure, what do you have available to invest in that, right? So nothing is free in a sense you are always having to take whatever it is that you're trying to do and measure it against time talent and treasure and one of the things too that i really appreciate about the take host that is what an often overlooked sub objective is that it encourages you to have a plan when you go to the range and be organized and disciplined but it also encourages you and helps promote consistency because that right there was the thing i whenever I'm kind of debriefing a student in class. One of the things that a common theme that I hear or I observe is their lack of consistency, their inability to stay focused for long durations, you know, and I'm guilty of it. I mean, you know, something happens, I'm already over there, completely disengaged from this conversation, wondering what's going on over there. So I get it. But you know, being consistent was another kind of key component to the takeos that a lot of people don't appreciate. If you can, like you said, you know, if you invested one box of ammo per month for 12 months, that was very well organized, disciplined, structured, and then you collected all the metrics, the data points from it, you'd be surprised at the difference between month one and month 12. Well, you know, and if you're going to classes, if you're going this class, that class, I mean, you know, an inexpensive class now is about 400 bucks, right? Mm. For, and for one day, and, and that's kind of your average price. So, so you're going to go up there, not prepared. You know, there's things you can do at home to get up there. So you get the most out of the class. One of the, one of the hard things is, is staying, sitting through a class where somebody signed up that just shouldn't be there, mm. you know, and it's, it's like, look, bring show up with every mag you own jacked right mm. um put put if you have a dump pouch you know you've got extra rounds in there you're standing around well the guys you're 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 keeping all your load all your mags done all the time i hate let's take a 10 minute break for somebody to load their mag it's like are you mm. you can't keep up with this you know just you know hey time is money opium's mm. money time is <laughs> opium let's go you know um <laughs> Uh, that that's one thing that for me is like why why are you here man this is this is above you you shouldn't you should go home so. so i sympathize it's tough because the problem again is that we're an unregulated industry so when you as so from i'm looking at it from a business point of view you know i want to attract and encourage customers to come to classes so i'm trying to do that in a manner that is also respective of the customers that are in the class i, I get and that so, you know you don't want to be the jerk but no no but it, it begs, you know, begs the question, you know, about prerequisites and understanding and, and where I was going with this is knowing yourself, knowing your skill level, which goes back to one of the things that we saw when we first kind of hit the, hit the, hit the industry is that a lot of people didn't know where they were. A lot of people thought they were good. A lot of people thought that they had the skills 
that they emulated, but they really didn't. And so, you know, knowing yourself and knowing what you're capable of is a hugely valuable thing. And even if you know yourself and you know that you're just a beginner, that is hugely valuable. That gives you so much latitude to, to shift left and right, as opposed to somebody that doesn't. And like you said, they, they're in a class, it's a complicated situation. I've had, um, you know, very rarely have I had to dismiss a student for safety, but I have, ha I have asked students to move to a different class because their skill level wasn't where they were at. But had they stayed, more than likely they would have been a safety issue that I would have had to have addressed. So it's just one of those things, unfortunately. Excuse me. And you've got some, you've got some classes coming up here. Uh, a lot of them, well, some in Texas, New Hampshire, mm -hmm. um, and then you've got some in Arizona in December. I'm kind of looking at Correct. that one here. Yeah. So I think that's a concealed carry, right? That's our carry two class. That's an intermediate level class. Okay. So what are the prerequisites for that? So that's a good question. One of the things that I have tried to do with prerequisites was to allow the individual to, to have control of their own destiny. So what we ask for carry to is two things. Well, technically three, if you count the equipment. One is that, uh, so let's go with the easy one, which is the equipment, right? We want to make sure that you have the proper equipment to come to that class. And so when you look at our equipment list, one of the prerequisites is, hey, read the equipment list and make sure you show up with all the gear, right? Because one of the problems that we've had is people that don't follow instructions very well. And so a, a, quick, I, I, a quick IQ test is whether or not you can read an equipment sheet, equipment list sheet, and actually follow those instructions and bring all that stuff there. So that gives me a lot of insight into how students will behave in class. Um, the other two have to do with, number one, do you know and do you follow the universal safety rules? If you know and follow the universal safety rules, then I'm very open to having you in the class because then I can trust that even if the skill is above your skill level, you're going to be safe as you try to figure it out. If you don't know or don't follow the safety rules, then that's a huge red flag for me right off the bat. Safety is the most important thing that we do. So I'm like super keen on that. The second thing is, do you have at a minimum the basic skills that we consider to be like what a beginner should have? And we define that as, you know how to operate your firearm. You know your firearm and how to operate it. So in other words, you know all the features on there, if there's safeties, if there's any other kind of uniqueness to that firearm, you know how to operate it. Then you know how to uh, demonstrate the very basics of marksmanship. So you've got the gun handling stuff, you've got the marksmanship stuff. Do you know the basics of marksmanship? I don't expect you to be like an expert marksman, but I don't want to spend time in a carry, a concealed carry class trying to teach marksmanship principles per se. We do, but it's not like, like that should have been something that was covered in our pistol classes. Yeah, exactly. Not necessarily our carry two class. So I want you to have good operation of your firearm. So good manipulations of your firearm and the basics of marksmanship. Then the equipment. 
if you have those three things, I would say that you technically would meet our prerequisites. Of course, coming to our carry one class would solve that problem. Coming or having gone to a carry one or similar class from another reputable instructor would also suffice at meeting that prerequisite. So what is the, uh, I guess you can't tell all your itinerary or scheduling, but what would somebody expect to learn in this particular class? Well, the first thing that we do is you're going to really be, um, you might think you have a good understanding of your draw stroke, but you're really going to learn about your draw stroke. You're going to learn about your draw stroke from a variety of conditions and from a variety of positions. Then you're also going to learn that uh, one of the problems that we have is people that come to a carry class with a range uniform. So part of that equipment list is bringing clothing, normal street clothing to the class and having to learn about defeat methodology, which is the overarching kind of premise behind how do I get to my gun, regardless of what I'm wearing, whether it be my favorite range attire, you know, like whatever that is, to I'm in my work attire, which is, you know, suit and tie, whatever it might be. So big thing is that you understand defeat methodology and then you work, I, I make you work through articles of clothing that you might not think you wear, but you probably wear more regularly than you, or you wear enough to where you need to know how to defeat that cover garment. Um, and then we really push the envelope with regards to like contingencies. If I could teach you the perfect way to do the draw stroke, but there's always going to be that wild card that, I don't know, whatever, something mm -hmm. happened. And Somebody's we've identified, yeah. well, maybe, but it could also be something as simple as, um, you know, you weren't able to defeat that cover garment first. And, and we've, we've, we've been doing this a long time that we've identified six. There's actually more than six, but we cover six in the class contingencies. And that can be everything from a, you know, failed holster to a failed grip to, you know, just a, a plethora, six of them. Uh, different contingencies. And then we teach you how to manage those contingencies. And the funny thing about the contingencies is that by bringing attention to them, it increases the chances of you avoiding them. So that's a major reason why we like to cover the contingencies. Uh, and then we just kind of like are constantly pushing the envelope with regards to your, 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 your marksmanship skills, but from concealment, which adds a completely new dynamic. So drawing open carry is easy. I shouldn't say easy. Um, is the first step. Moving to drawing from concealed is the second step. Moving to drawing from concealed from like positions of disadvantage is kind of like the, the key thing. You might be sitting, maybe you got knocked to the ground. You know, it, there's a lot of different scenarios there. We try to cover those as long as we feel like the class is at that level. If they're not at that level, then we sometimes will substitute those subjects for other subjects. We will, I hate to say, use this word, but we'll remediate. Um, so there's just a lot of things that we cover in that class. It's hard to kind of put it in perspective. I mean, you get a, you, you can go to the website and the description does a good job of giving you a big picture of seeing exactly what the class, what you can expect from the description, as well as the equipment list. And I think sometimes that's a good place to start um, some people will have questions. Do we, you know, can we do this? Can we do that? You know, like one of the most common questions that we get is, well, um, can I use this gun even though I carry this gun? 
and I'm, I, I mean, honestly, if it's a modern firearm that's a safe firearm to use, I don't care. But if I were to give you a piece of advice, I would say come to the class with the gun that you're trying to carry on a regular basis. Right. Um, and most of those guns are the, you know, when you think concealed carry and, and when you start thinking about characteristics of a concealed carry gun, you'll typically think small, something that's smaller because they're easier to hide. Full-size guns, for some people, they can get away with it. I am not one of those people that can get away. I mean, I can, but it's like, but it's not sustainable. It's not something I can do every day, long-term. But the smaller, you know, micro-compact, subcompact guns that are out there on the market now, they're doing so, they've come so far from when we first started. Like when we first started, oh my God, this subcompact, micro-compact pistols that were around were terrible. I mean, I would cringe when I would see somebody come into the class because I just knew that thing's going to hiccup every, you know, every magazine. It's going to have a problem or whatever. Or guys, guys going to wear his guy's going to wear his forearm out because that 19 pound scratchy trigger pull every for sure like terrible my gosh yes absolutely so we are in like in today right now we are in an amazing time period because so much has been so much attention has been directed at concealed carry you see that in the legalization of constitutional carry throughout half of the union right now so more than half the union is recognizing constitutional carry which is great then you see the popularity of um, training starting to, you know, people are becoming more invested in trying to get better, but carrying on a regular basis. And what you're seeing is you're seeing the market respond to that by creating product that is more appealing to that demographic, which is somebody that wants to carry. Uh, they don't want to carry the big honker that, with all the bells and whistles. They just want something that's Sometimes easy. That's fun, to it, no doubt. And that's why, but that's the question that I get from a lot of the students. Hey, it's fun for me to shoot this gun because I shoot it well. Great. I get it. Um, and I'm not telling you not to shoot it because I would rather you have a you know positive experience, but then are you really helping yourself in the concealed carry goal? Is that really helping you learn how to carry and shoot the gun that you're going to rely on to protect yourself and your loved ones? So I kind of give people, I don't give people the, the um, like sometimes people are looking for me to give them a specific answer no you can't bring that gun i'm like well you can bring it i don't know if you're doing yourself justice by bringing it but by all means bring it bring you know because one of the things too that i want is i want the student to be comfortable i don't want them to feel i know that for a lot of students that are new to this just coming to a class can be uncomfortable i get that awkwardness i understand that we've all been there um but what I'm saying, what I'm relating is I want them to feel comfortable with the firearm that they're training on so that they're more likely to actually use that firearm on a regular basis. You know, and one of the other ways, uh, very inexpensively to get a lot of experience on that is to, to do an IDPA course. So, you know, you've got a SIG 365. I think Rob loves that gun. I love that gun. Take that um, as opposed to uh, Model 34. Uh, Glock, which everybody likes to run as an IDPA gun. It's like, come on, man. You're not, it's got a longer barrel than the 90. You're not carrying that thing, right? <laughs> but, um, but run it with a bug gun and, uh, you know, 3.7 inch barrel and, and the 10 round mags. And, and that's what you have to carry. And I've done that. And I tell you, it, it, it shows a lot of limitations that you have um, well, when you're not running a range gun on a course like that. So I think that's a great idea. 
Um, and one of the companies that I'm very proud to work with that I think is leading the industry in this is SIG. SIG last year had the very first P365 championship. So it was a match. It was a organized match that participants of can, could only shoot a P365. There you go. And, and it was, it was, and it all had to be shot from concealed. Everything was from concealed. And, and there was some, you know, like, like uh, some of the, some of the, some of the folks that were concealed were like what I would consider to be kind of like, again, gaming the concealment side of it. Go straighter. You mean like wearing, you. wearing a fly, fly fishing vest? If you want to call it that, I mean, the, some of the stuff that I saw out there was hilarious, but I get it. Those guys are pro competitors. I understand why they do it. I give them shit for it. I'll see them in a couple of days. In fact, I'm leaving for the this year's SIG. And here's a great kind of um, a great conversation, right? So last year when they SIG ran it, I think they had, you know, 120 people come. And I, I think it was like 10, 12 stages great it was well well managed well run it was awesome it, it covered four days it was four days long right this year they doubled the number of registrations yeah so and 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 what that means what that says to me is people are interested in training with the gun that they carry right they the p365 i mean before the p365 glock really had the market Shield, the, the Smith and Wesson Shield was, uh, you know, content with second place. Well, that and so and in California, the, that's the number one because it's on the roster. Um, the forty-three, the the Shield. Yeah, it's the number one selling concealed weapons firearm because uh, the Sig three sixty five is not on our ridiculous roster. Mm. You know, hopefully we'll get that overturned. But the Shield is super popular in California because of what is available. It's, it's, it, it is absolutely. And, and, you know, one of the things that I do is I will, um, we'll, we'll do an, an apples to apple comparison between these, all these guns. And I've been thrilled doing this. It's been so much fun shooting. We call it facts, not feelings. So we'll put these guns through a series of courses of fire and we'll compare them apples to apples. You know, how did this gun shoot compared to this gun compared to this gun all through the same course of fire that's there's four courses of fire that you go through. It's about 55 rounds total. And we've been collecting data points on, on a, a fair amount of guns. And surprisingly, you know, like I thought I would have a favorite uh, or I thought I would shoot one well, but truthfully I shoot them all well, which means that, you know, sometimes it's not necessarily, well, yeah. well, it's, well some, <laughs> what I mean by that, what, I, what I'm saying by that is that, sometimes people think that the gun inherently is the solution and it's not the solution. The, the solution is the shooter. It's always the Indian, never the arrow. Um, we always said, uh, you know, in, in hunting, it was, we needed to tighten up the nut at the end of the stock. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So I love the fact that they're doing this. I'm excited. I'll, I'll be going out there. Um, I think that's next week. Um, and they're actually doing great stuff too. So you, you know, even if you've never been to a competition, they have some seminars, some day long seminars that you can attend that will kind of help familiarize yourself with that. Um, I'm going to be doing a basic and advanced class or so one day, basic one day advanced class. They've got a bunch of other people that are coming out there 
So it's going to be a good time. And I really think that more people are going to appreciate what this does, because I told people last year, we did a great debrief at the end. Um, you know, this is, this is an excellent opportunity to pressure test your gear and your training. When, when is the SIG competition? Uh, August 3rd and 4th. Let me look. Let me look. Let me look. It's, um, first, first week in August. First so week in August. Yeah. And, and your, uh, your third training through the course. Sixth. Yeah, 3rd through the 6th. Yeah. Uh, I would have gone, but I'm in Prescott that week. Okay, so yeah. <laughs> um, Trident Concepts is your website. You've got all of your schedules on there. Uh, I'm looking at the December course in Phoenix. I think that's a yeah. pretty good yeah. deal there. Um, Absolutely. You can get Great your, time to be in Phoenix. <laughs> the only time to be in Phoenix in December. It's the surface of the sun right now. Mm. Um, your training programs, you've got a lot of the stuff on your website. You can kick it around, take a look at what's available. Not only mm -hmm. do you do pistols or concealed, you also do carbines and oh, yeah, absolutely. All, all the fun stuff in life, right? Absolutely. And that's tridentconcepts.com. And, For sure. uh, give yourself give yourself a plan, guys. A plan and an objective when you're hitting the range. Uh, Jeff Gonzalez, thank you for your service. Rob, um, how are you doing? Uh, really good. I I wanted to bring up Jeff's book. Um, oh yes, he did this concealed carry manual. Um, it is so well written. Um, it it kind of even even an entry level new gun owner. Um, these are the things that you need to know about. They're, they're things that you don't, you haven't even thought of yet. Um, so it's, it's broke down so well. It's a really, it's a really fast read. Um, but it's full of, full of information that you guys would, would grab benefit from. And that's not just a new gun owner. That's if you're carrying a gun, he's probably going to touch on some things in here that you go, ah, oh, damn, I had never thought of that. Mm. Um, well, it's a good piece, Jeff. Um, I've, I've been putting all the guys that I know. Um, you know, Phil and I always talk about, you know, once I've made that decision to, to be an armed citizen, I'm going to carry daily. I'm going to do these things. The things that I have obligations to now um, are knowledge. Those mm. out of so much, so much trouble just with being smart about my carry um you know it's knowing your mission you know i mm. always touch on the fact that once i've made the decision to arm myself and have a lethal weapon with me all the time i have to suspend my natural reactions to respond to things emotionally mm. So um, true. Are you, are you talking about the Prius drivers? <laughs> yes. yes, I am. Um, but something else I wanted to bring up along that very same line, and Jeff was touching on it, and he's talking about guys coming through his class and kind of leaving butt hurt. They got their feelers hurt. Um, as I step in, it's not, it's not Jeff's failure. It's mine. Um, so as I come in, I'm not coming in to, to see if I can beat Jeff's standard or anything like that. I'm coming to pick his brain. I want to I use him to better myself. 
And the only way I can truly do that is to park my ego at the door when I come mm. in. I just have to come in with the right mindset and the hope that I'm coming in and I'm going to learn something that I can take away from this and build and make my skill set better. Yeah, um, if you're not if you're not willing to be coachable, stay home. Yeah. 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 Just just go out and and you know, don't have a plan. Just blast blast away as fast as you can and extend your create a future copper mine on the hillside. Yeah. It's oh. just you know, it, it's such a big deal to have a purpose. You know, we always yeah. talk about you know, the guy comes in and he goes, well, I want a laser and I want a flashlight and I want this and I want that. And, you know, where are you going on duty at? Um, <laughs> well, I can sympathize. I, I totally understand what you're saying, but I can also sympathize with a lot of these newer shooters. The one the kind of like the mantra that I give them is that you, you don't know what you don't know. Yes. And, and it takes some time before you can figure out exactly what you need. Uh, like you, you walk into these, you know, you, I guess what I'm trying to say is it takes time before you actually figure out what it is that you need. And, and, and unfortunately, you know, it, it, there's no shortcut to it. There's no easy, you know, like I, I get asked by my close friends, Hey, what can I do? And, and I'm like, there's not an easy, I can't just condense it down into a single nugget of knowledge to give you. I can give you things that will help you on that journey, but you know, you just like, I guess my biggest kind of like, I guess, oops, sorry about that takeaway moment is, Hey, you're going to, you're going to experience frustration. You're going to experience failure. You're going to experience disappointment. You're going to experience all of this because, well, first, if you're not experiencing them, you're probably doing something wrong. And that's all okay. We've all been there before. But embrace that because that is a signal that you're doing something right, that you're, that you're starting to track in the right direction. So like, that's like the best parting advice that I can give to people is, you know, if you're not disappointed, if you're not frustrated, if you're not upset with your performance, then you're probably you're not, not paying yourself. attention. Yeah. Well, you're not paying attention perhaps, or you don't know what you don't know to pay attention but then you also are not pushing yourself. You're not trying to push the envelope. Yeah, that, that pressure is what, is what makes you. It, it really is. It, it's it is. Um, I, we, we have a, I have a very good friend of mine and uh, he told me of this, this story. It's all about uh, him being the recipient of, a, of an authentic Japanese sword, a national artifact from Japan. And he went over there to pick it up and he talked about the process that they do. And, and the way the guy explained the process to him is that they take the raw iron, which is filled with impurities, and they heat it, and they fold it, and yes. they cool it. They heat it, they fold it, they cool it. They heat it, they fold it, they cool it. And this takes years to fabricate a single item, right? But it's the heating, folding, cooling that is repeated over and over and over and over and over again that ultimately leads to this majestic item, right? In this case, a national artifact. So I try to tell people the same thing. I'm like, you know, you, you, when you look at your, your skill level, look at it like that. You're starting off like just this raw iron that mm -hmm. through this forging process is turned into steel. 
And that steel then becomes that sharp edge that we always try to ultimately achieve. So it was a beautiful story. It was a pretty kick-ass story, to be honest. But I love that aspect, the, the beauty of their culture and how they, they look at that sword building is just, again, it's beautiful. It's just, that's the only word that I can use to describe it. Yeah, I, I've actually read that exact exact same little piece like that. Um, it, it, it just, it, it's the way, you know, there, yeah. there's not a, there's not a quick path. And for some of us that, that want to go in with your gas fully engaged, you know, just stomping on the pedal, um, you're just miss so many lessons along the way. And it is, it's the journey. It's not the destination. So um, uh, I love hearing that. Yeah, I love hearing that. Well, I, I'm going to say it depends on where you're going because sometimes the destination is pretty darn cool. <laughs> <laughs> perhaps, perhaps, perhaps. Uh, man, Jeff, I thank you so much for for coming in and sharing some time with us. Um, Absolutely. We are we are so blessed. Uh, we've we've got so many good guys that are that are affiliated with us and and friends and. Uh, it's, it's an honor to count you as one. My um, pleasure. So, Bill, you got any, any quick takeaways? No, I, well, I think, I think we should all take a look at that class schedule. I'm going to go to the December. I made that executive decision this year. Go to the December Concealed Carry 2 course, um, if you'll have me on that. And um, I think he's got some great, great ideas. And, you know, it's nice to have an organized, organized training system for shooting that doesn't exist so thank you jeff for putting that together my pleasure guys it's always my pleasure i'd like to thank everybody for tuning in today um join us again next week we're always looking for your questions comments and concerns you can get a hold of me directly at rob at ccwsafe.com thank you for tuning in today and we will see you guys next time bye-bye adios bye.